As these powers are measurable, we can see how strong each country is now, was in the past, and whether they're rising or declining. By examining the sequences from many countries, we can see how a typical cycle transpires. Okay, so here he goes into um, the, or China ranks in all the comparable variables here. Yeah, I mean, is this peak to where it was the peak of its previous dynasties or just compared to the United States? Um, it is lacking in reserve currency and financial center, which I cited, but I think that he's off about, I think trade should be where it's leading, not really military. I think he's overestimating and the power of the military and the competitors. He actually did does highlight that it has ticked down a little bit, probably for the reasons why. I mentioned but I would also say a lot of the, some of these other variables are not trending as steeply high as they look on this chart and because the wiggles can be confusing we can simplify it a bit to focus on the pattern of cause-effect relationships that drive the rise and decline of a typical empire and he's right that reserve currency has a meaningful lag because usually that switches upon um, the change of a war or a financial catastrophe that happens post-peak. As you can see, better education typically leads to increased innovation and technology development, and with a lag, the establishment of the currency as a reserve currency. You can also see that these forces then declined in a similar order, reinforcing each other's decline. Yeah, I just think that the problem is that with this one is that China, what they tried to do is build their country just on competitiveness and trade and then tried to use the money made from that to finance the rest of them. And then, but the thing is that demographically, their population may get too old to be competitive before they complete the process. Whereas other countries, usually they just let the market do it. And so that the only really thing that the government invested in in the early days, I'm referring to like the 19th century, was education. And then by investing in things, having basic public education and making that a cultural priority in a lot of the dominant powers in the world, at the time, such as Japan and Western Europe and the United States and Australia, uh, you basically had the increased education level elevate the society as a whole through all the other variables. But I think he's right about historically how these things ebb and flow. These cause and effect relationships drove the cycles of rises and declines all the way back to the Roman Empire. I saw how the stories of each one of these cycles blended together with others before, during, and after in the same way as each individual story blends with others. I think he underestimates Spain here, too. Like, the Spanish Empire 
through its conquests in Latin America, I think superseded China and was the dominant world power uh, during that period. Uh, they were able to, first of all, had more gold thanks to the world trade. They built really the first, them and the Portuguese really built the first global trading empires. And they weren't really surpassed until the Dutch mastered the capital markets. But otherwise, it, yeah, I think that he's pretty spot on. Except for some other criticism, I think he told you he's underrated France, Japan, Russia, and Germany, and Spain during this whole thing. And the Ottomans. I think the Ottomans probably were also, they were probably all the number two power through a lot of the... The sixteenth century, as well. It's just that we don't really have that much indications of their economic trade, and they had a lot of activity that expanded beyond their core region, especially in East Africa and the Indian Ocean trade, as well. But in general, he's right about the cycles and falls. I just think that the, the where these lines are positioned are off in many corners, but that's probably more for a history show and not analyzing finance with Nick. To make the epic 500-year story that is our collective history. Speaking of history, it'd be fun actually to do a collaboration with a history uh, YouTuber, such as some of the ones that I've mentioned, such as Crowd or What If Alt Hist or the other guys I've reacted to, to talk about these relative cycles and really how dominant truly these were economically and culturally and socially during their peak times. Be a fun video. And like human life cycles, no two are exactly the same, but most are similar. They're driven by logical cause and effect relationships that progress through stages from birth to strength and maturity to weakness and inevitably decline. However, that's like saying a person's life cycle takes 80 years on average without recognizing that many are much shorter and many are longer. While age can be a good indicator of future longevity, a better way is to look at health indicators. One can do that with empires and their vital signs too. Yeah, I think he's right on that. You can look at financial data and economic data to measure the health of society and you can use this also on sociocultural indicators to measure demographic health but that's a different conversation really than what we're going for here the difference is that an empire unlike a person can last multiple generations and doesn't have to die um, in a predictable 250 year path like, I think that's where he's wrong. They don't all live about the same amount of time. I think you've had regime change of the dominant power due to the generational cycle. But that doesn't mean that the same country or empire can't win the generational cycle multiple times in a row. The biggest example of that would be the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, depending on whether you count the Byzantines or not, lasted from 750 BC to 476 AD if you exclude the Byzantines. And if you include the Byzantines, it lasts to 1453. So that's a 2200 year period. And say from when they won 
the first Punic War to 8200, they were the most dominant power. And that was a 400, at least a 400-year period, which is longer than the historical and modern era, the 80 to 100-year period of dominant reserve currency era. They had several reformations of their government, most notably the transition from the Republic to the Empire, but they had one around the Punic Wars too, and the area of the five good emperors, that several government and even such as Constantine and Diocletian in later years had reforms of their system internally without losing their spot as the dominant world power or at least the dominant power that could contact them effectively because Han China was just simply too far away and Chinese dynasty similar things happened to them uh, they were the dominant power in Asia for most of their lifetime despite um, having several turnovers in their government. So you, I think the internal cycle can keep flowing without necessarily you losing your status to the top dog. And I explained this earlier in the video, but it's, I think it's just an important point to repeat. I found that by watching the indicators of power change, I was able to see what stage a country was in, which helped me to anticipate what was likely to come next. Now, I'll take you through the big cycle in more detail. Give me 20 minutes and I'll give you the last 500 years of history and show you the similar patterns across the Dutch, British, US, and Chinese empires. 500 years of big cycles. I, I kind of unintentionally explained the whole 500 year thing earlier in this video without even knowing it. Because I did watch this before I did this reaction. And the one thing I forgot to mention is the importance of reserve currency. And I generally agree with him on how these cycles work. So if you go, and I have a link to the original video if you want to see that 20 minute section. But. The reserve currency, the reason why it's important, because it allows a government to expand its spending capacity without expanding its taxation on its own people. Because if you need to, the world needs your currency to trade, they need to get supply of dollars. And who's going to provide that supply of dollars needs to be provided from liquidity excess of the use of the domestic economy. And so by providing that liquidity in exchange, the U.S. gets what is effectively tribute payments in terms of purchasing power from the rest of the world that they can use to spend on financing whether the military needs or increased domestic spending beyond the taxpayers capacity or investments in infrastructure or whatever the government decides to use it on. Uh, I think personally that the reserve currency privilege has been used rather poorly since the turn of the millennium. I think it was pretty well balanced, I would say, prior to that, except for the guns and butter era of the 60s with Vietnam War and the Great Society at the same time, forcing the US off the golden window. But I'd say since like Volcker took control of inflation in the early 80s to about 2000, uh, the reserve currency privilege I don't think was overly abused and we saw lots of prosperity globally in the US and its allies in the 80s and the 90s. 
But then after September 11th, you had overreaction or just a deliberate plan from neoconservatives, depending on how you look at it, um, and foreign policy and the U.S.'s excesses in the Middle East, in Iraq and Afghanistan, and then followed by um, a policy of mass social deficit spending with the expansion of Medicare and the Bush administration and a general lax approach to deficit spendings in the Obama and Trump administrations led to the abuse of the exorbitant privilege of the reserve currency. The problem is no country, including China, really has the ability to step up and take the dollar's place. Uh, I mentioned due to liquidity concerns, but if you just look at data, which I'll show a chart here, there's a reason why that RMB transactions are still well less than 5% of the total world foreign currency transactions, it's liquidity and lack of trust. I think the PBOC is trying to do that, change that, and they're going to, in order to, they're going to need to have positive real interest rates and a stable currency for a long period of time and watch one of their geopolitical rivals' currencies blow up or win a military conflict to change that because it takes, it's in the financial world, it takes a long time for people to switch to something that's working well enough. When borrowing and spending are strong, the empire... Alright, this is the part, the decline, which I think is, I'm not going to skip because I think it's probably of most concern to my viewers and this is what I've been asked about. So, really, is the U.S. in decline and is the U.S. alone in decline? I will answer that question by going through what Dalio has to say about societies in decline. The decline comes from internal economic weakness together with internal fighting or costly external fighting or both. Typically, the decline comes gradually and then very suddenly. When debts become very large and there is an economic downturn, and the empire can no longer borrow the money necessary to repay its debts, the financial bubble bursts. This creates great domestic hardships and forces the country to choose between defaulting on its debts or printing a lot of new money. Yeah, we talked about this in the, when I explained it in the chart earlier. Yeah, with the excess bubble, people, the money is not there to cover the service, the interest. There's not enough growth productivity, and so there's default. And since governments do not like to see themselves completely fail all at once and default, they're gonna pr they're gonna print money to cover it up and hopefully extend themselves an election cycle, and then that creates its own set of problems. It always chooses to print a lot of new money. At first, gradually, and eventually, massively. That devalues the currency and raises inflation. For the Dutch, this was the financial crisis brought about by financial excesses and paying for the fourth Anglo-Dutch war. Similarly, for the British, it was paying for its financial excesses and its debts from the two world wars. And for the U.S., it's been three cycles of debt finance booms and busts since the 90s, with the central bank stepping in each time with stronger measures. When the 
I think he's being generous there. If you look at the dollar versus gold since 1971, when the gold's about 2,000 an ounce right now, um, or maybe 1,900 as I'm recording this. I'm just going to be conservative and put it at 1,900. And then there's 35 back then. So, I mean, like the decline versus the, has declined, well, has lost 90, over 95% of its value since um, 1971. It's worse than what happened with the pound, and that's what's worse than what happened with the Dutch Gilder at the same time. But look at any other currency. Look at the Chinese RMB versus gold over that same period of time. The RMB's been about between six to seven versus the dollar over the since nineteen ninety five. And so it's declined just as much versus gold. And China has its own levels of debt that are out of control. Some of them are just put on the provincial government's balance sheets, and a lot of it is just simply not transparent. The lack of transparency doesn't necessarily mean that your financial situation is better. It just means that we don't know where the bodies are buried. Government has problems funding itself when there are bad economic conditions and living standards for most people are declining, and there are large wealth, values, and political gaps. Internal conflict between the rich and the poor, as well as different ethnic, religious, and racial groups. I think a lot of this just has to do with visibility. Like, due to China not having a free political society, they're not allowed to publicly share their grievances with each other and with the state. So it looks like they're way more unified than they actually are because if you're not on board, you disappear. That's, I mean, that the that's the advantage of not having a free society is you can cover up your warts. That doesn't mean they don't exist. It just means that they're not visible to the public. Uh, and the income inequality in terms of Gini coefficient is much higher there than in the United States as well. And my theory is not, not saying that the U.S. is simply inherently better of a country. No, I just think that my theory here is on the decline. I don't think it's just the United States that's going through this phase. It's just we're the most visible because we have the most loud media in the world, and we're the biggest of the major democratic societies. I mean, India has more people, but in terms of economic power and military power, they surpass India. And the U.S. also is a lot more fragile in a lot of ways due to the amount of diversity in the country and the internet making people more alienated and finding communities not based on regional ties but just maybe shared interests but that's that's a sociological topic I really not going to get into here but the point being is I think a lot of the tensions that he is and the pro and the financial excesses that he is mentioning is not just going on in America it's happening in Europe it's happening in China it's happening in Japan um, and it's ha and modern emerging markets basically have synced their monetary policies with the United States at this point. So I think they all the ships they're going to go down. They're going down together, and whoever's the dominant power is going to be who creates 
a better internal order at the fastest pace when the great restructuring happens, which I think we're ongoing. The start in 08, and I think it'll probably, the restructuring of the major powers of the world will end probably at the end of this decade. Greatly increases. This leads to political extremism that shows up as populism of the left or the right. And the crackdowns going on the last two years against big businesses in China are not their own form of political extremism or lying flat. Again, just because it's not visible and it's censored doesn't mean it's there. But yeah, I agree. Political, a lot of the dissatisfaction with lower standard of living leads to political extremism because politicians can't tell the truth. Imagine if I'm going to try to be nonpartisan here. So if President Trump and President Biden stood together at a press conference and said, hey, look, our government blew it. We blew through all of our savings and we simply cannot compete with the rest of the world who's willing to work at far lower wages than we are. And the only way we're going to be able to fix our country is that we raise taxes and or print enough money that you are going to have to settle either outcome with a lower standard of living similar to your brethren in the third world. Uh, well, no matter which president says that, your party's going to get slaughtered in the election. Like Jimmy Carter tried to say something like that in the 70s about forcing people to, how people need to be cut back for good of the country. He got destroyed in 1980. And after that, nobody's really tried to preach a message of austerity. And during the European debt crisis, every time governments tried to enact austerity, they subsequently lost their next elections. It's a flaw of the democratic system, and it's a common thing. That's why you have populism, because people say, like, hey, wait, you have these extremists who promise, look, we'll fix all the problems so you don't have to lower your standard of living. And our extreme solution will be the way to do that. It's just a matter of the fact of which one wins out here. Those of the left seek to redistribute the wealth, while those of the right seek to maintain the wealth in the hands of the rich. Typically during such times, taxes on the rich rise. And when the rich fear their wealth and well-being will be taken away, they move to places, assets, and currencies they feel safer in. Yeah, we have started to see that. Um, you have the whole idea of these billionaires building bunkers in New Zealand. Um, yeah, you have see a lot of capital flows moved to Switzerland through various countries around the world and other places too. And crypto, a lot of people use that as a synthetic way to opt out of the system and the desire for hard assets. I mean, I go to a lot of these conferences with family offices and well-to-do people and the things that people want most are hard assets and digital assets. And I think that's this, this growing recognition that higher taxes are likely to come whether directly or indirectly through inflation. And there's also greater social resentment against the upper classes in general makes it politically easier to target them. Uh, what this, but the thing is, that I think a little different this time is that the whole world is going through this this kind of crisis at the same time. So in previous eras, say like if you were a British person in the 1920s, you can move your money to America and know that it's safe. 
because they are not struggling with the same decline issues as you are. But now, since everybody's kind of on this down wave, at least among the major powers, and since the minor countries are kind of influenced or bullied by the major powers, it's not as clear that there's an escape hatch like there has been in previous cycles. These outflows reduce the empire's tax revenue, which leads to a classic, self-reinforcing, hollowing out process. When the flight of wealth gets bad enough, governments outlaw it. Those I think it's kind of funny he mentions this. He's, he's correct, but China had it outlawed the whole time. So just because he never allowed outflows because you want to maintain a fixed exchange rate and an independent monetary policy, and the only way you can do that is with capital controls. I mentioned this in the Impossible Trinity in Iceberg Part 5, which I'll have a link to this in the description. And yeah, I think that's what would happen. But I think that that's, I don't really think that China is immune to this. They, they, they just never trusted their people enough to open up capital. Like that's why it's so common to see wealthy Chinese try to buy real estate and hard assets um, or companies in other countries as a way to get money out. So this is a worldwide thing. It's not just the U.S. as the empire in decline. And yeah, this is a common symptom, but I think the whole world is going through a massive reorg right now. Seeking to get out, begin to panic. These turbulent conditions undermine productivity which shrinks the economic pie and causes more conflict about how to divide the shrinking resources. Populist leaders emerge from both sides and pledge to take control and bring about order. That's when democracy is most challenged because it fails to control the anarchy. And it is when the move to a strong populist leader who will bring order to the chaos is most likely. As conflict... Yeah, he's correct on that. And really depending on what kind of populist regime or transitionary regime comes in these major countries is what's going to dictate who's going to be the leader in the next era. And populism is a dirty word because populism is simply what the people want, which on one side, if you read the book, The Myth of the Ra Rational Voter, it really kind of tells you the people don't make any sense and they want conflicting outcomes and conflicting policies at the same time. But because of what Dalio is saying about the conflict of the shrinking pie phenomenon, populism really just means to seek what the majority want to rectify from an entrenched elite who has kind of ladder-pulled their way to the top and changed the regulatory environment and so political social environment to make it so that there is no social mobility. I talked about this a little bit in the compensation theory and my, some of my reactions to what if all hissed, but I can get into that in a future video as well. But the point being is that these populist groundswells either lead to one aside getting a dominant control of government and running roughshod to reform it in the ways they seek fit. If these sides are too equally strong, it could be a civil war. Or the establishment can try to, to wring power away from the populist forces by distracting them with an international conflict, which would be a world war if it's one of the great powers. The problem with option number three 
is that nuclear weapons make that one very difficult to pursue without the risk of mutually assured destruction. So I think it's actually the least likely outcome of what these countries do. So I think all these countries are going to go through some sort of regime change and transition driven by a radical populism. It's just a matter of which side wins. Uh, to use the example, I'll use the United States, and I'll show the image of the political compass here. And I really think there's four different directions that the United States can go when it's populist restructuring. One is the authoritarian left. The authoritarian left in the United States outcome would look like an American woke version of the CCP, where you have like a com like an oligarchic committee, basically entrench the social and political hierarchy in a way that fits their peak radical um, goals of that era, and says, "Look, we hit all the progress we wanted. This is the new order. It's the way it's going to be, and you better be happy with it, or else we're going to use force and we're going to basically." cancel our enemies and that would be one outcome it would basically just look like a more westernized version of effectively modern China uh, slightly higher living standards the second one is the authoritarian right model which is I think one of our most of our political establishment fears the most because a lot of the wealthy elites who have aligned themselves with the center-left establishment have the most to lose from this. They'd probably get their assets seized or maybe even arrested by the populist who's in charge. And this would be, since it, it, these are very different for every nation, because every nation has different history, but it'd be very nationalistic in nature. Uh, so and it would be, it would have probably since it's America's built on some sort of economic and personal freedom, They'd probably grant a little bit more individual rights than a typical authoritarian regime. But dissent would still generally not be tolerated. It would just be handled probably in a, in a different way. And instead of having it based off of the postmodern hierarchical way of sorting things, it'd probably be based more on a traditional hierarchy of sorting things. And it would be much more collusive with, with business interests. And I think something I missed really on the right-wing populist side of things as well is that what a lot of people think of the map of the American empire is a lot different than what it actually is. If you look at it, you think of it as just the U.S. and a couple random islands in the Pacific and the Caribbean. But what it really is, it includes much larger swaths of the world, which I have included in this map here. And if I think the right-wing populist scenario really essentially would be similar to living in America, say, of the 1980s or the 1990s, except you lose your right to vote and have a say in the government. Um, and that the U.S., because you no longer have the right to vote, it would, the U.S. would be okay with annexing the empire formally instead of just having a military base and saying that you're actually a sovereign country. A lot of these vassal states in the world 
would be formally next into the United States. I wouldn't be surprised if Canada and Mexico united with the United States and large parts of Europe and even Japan possibly and Australia. And the American Empire actually was an empire. But in like the average person, similar to Rome, it would be lifestyle would be very similar to like say what it was like living in terms of level economic and social freedom, say from like nineteen eighty to two thousand. But you just lose your political freedom in the sense that the people in charge are the people in charge. The political class determines who rules. The American Republic becomes the American Empire. And then the third scenario is something like The Sovereign Individual, which is a book that I recommend reading. Uh, and it's this idea that the state as itself is kind of like what religion was in the 1500s and the Protestant Reformation kind of broke the iron grip control of the Catholic Church over European society and you'd have a similar Martin Luther moment for government and the state and as a result governments and states in general become much weaker and either smaller in territory or they have the same territory but they can't do as much because sovereignty can be transmitted digitally and currencies and citizenships will be traded like stocks on exchanges and people will governments will have to compete for their for somebody to want to participate as part of their system this sounds kind of like a libertarian paradise and it's a concept that I think I'll probably do a re in-depth review of the sovereign individual in a future video but it would be basically a post-state world, effectively, where you'd still probably have governments, and in their last grasps, they'll try to suck up as much power as they can, and we might be living through the death pangs of the state right now, arguably by these people. But ultimately, the state's power will diminish due to their sclerotic legal and legislative and financial ability to adapt with the times and states eventually, and then pri and eventually private forces may be able to compete with offering the same services as states in many ways. So I think there's really three outcomes here. You have a sovereign individual slash like competitive model that all the states participate in. This is assuming we still have different nations. The second one would be a just Americanized version of the CCP. The third one would be like the Americanized version of a Roman Empire. And then the fourth one would just be, say, like the UN comes as a new power and just kind of replaces all of the states as they all kind of go and decline together. And a new world order kind of agreement is that, hey, the fact that we have all these different sovereign states with no higher authority is why we have wars and tension and people competing for resources when we need to be cooperating more. And maybe that's the, the alternative here. The alternative here is that we reality do have is that if I'm right and all these major empires of the world are declining at the same time, instead of them all trying to reform individually, they all just cry uncle and meet in a, a neutral setting together and decide to build a more cooperative world order that is more like a one world government. Uh, New World Conspiracy Theorist people would be rejoicing in their accuracy but dreading the fact that it actually came. 
And then there's other scenarios too, where say like the U.S. does go through this battle, but they don't restructure in a way that is as effective as another country. Maybe Japan is able to restructure in a way that they're able to, I don't know, sound, sound too sci-fi, become a cyborg state and utilize the potential, the singularity to, to their dominance over AI and robotic machinery to create a world empire. Or that China reforms its system to allow more economic and social freedom without a lot of the decadent baggage of the West. And so they do become that dominant power of the rise because they were able to shackle, take off the shackles of the CCP. Or Europe, they reform themselves and when their baby boom dies off, they restructure Europe as a single federalized state and get back into the business of empire building. So those are the possible scenarios here. I just don't think it's just, as what Dalio points out, as automatically China just is simply better than us and on the rise and know what they're doing. I mean, he's been quoted for saying, comparing the Chinese CCP to like a strict parent, which I think is kind of a little crazy, to be honest with you. But those are a few people ask. What are some of the alternatives? I think the other thing is that the range of possibilities here is much wider than most of us can comprehend. I'm just kind of highlighting what I think are some of the most likely end game scenarios in terms of currencies that I forgot to mention too. Is that if you have the shakeup of all the world's currencies are probably going to decline too. The world can either revert to a gold standard Globally, once again, you could have a digital crypto standard. That's what the Bitcoiners are betting on. You can have the dollar just maintain its power, kind of like the denarius did after Rome's several reformations. Or finally, you can have a hard asset-backed stablecoin type environment, where say like you have like a big plot of raw land or a vault of gold in the Cayman Islands, and that is the collateral for the new global exchange. Overall, I think Ray Daly did an excellent job summarizing the rise and fall of cycles. Uh, and I think that where he's just mistaken is that this is where I think he's implied the outcome, which I think is clouded by his biases towards the importance of inequality and of his favorability of the Chinese system. And however, I think there's just the range of outcomes is what makes, I think, this a more risky time to invest than previous other cycles because such is in flux. Really, the only thing similar would be like trading in the 1930s and early 40s with the world in transition uh, when basically the stakes for global dominance and therefore reserve currency status and a variety of other factors uh, basically left it everything completely up in the air and immense level of volatility and due to financial repression losses for most investors. I think it'll be an interesting time here. Um, different dynamics in technology and the fact that World War II basically put all of the great powers rise in imperial rise and falls in line with each other and sync makes me believe it's not just there's not some inevitable success or waiting like Dalio things, but whichever country goes through its 
domestic reshuffling of its home order in the way that is the most well adapted to the technological and sociological and geopolitical environment of the 21st century will be the dominant power. I think the most likely case is a more authoritarian version of the United States, but it could also be a federated EU, it could be a automated Japan, or it could be a more um, free version of China, or it can be a one world global state, or it just be the idea of the state disappears and we have a, the equivalent of the Protestant Reformation for governance. The outcomes are all everywhere, and that's what makes this an exciting time to invest. Let me know if you have any questions, or if you want me to elaborate on any of the points that I've made in this video. Um, I'm sp and actually the series, because I've been spending over two hours of recording this, so this is definitely going to be a multi-parter. Uh, thank you all for watching the whole thing. Uh, please like and subscribe if you like what we've talked about here, and good luck navigating the changing world and this transitional cycle we're all living in.